The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So friends, today I just want to offer a few reflections on the power of humility when approaching our perceptions, thoughts, views. This is um, an ongoing theme for me in my own practice, the subjectivity of our experience and how radically it shifts depending on conditioning our minds, what we want, what we don't want, what the situation is. So to start off, I'm going to tell a couple of quick stories. The first one's a personal story. The first, second one is a story from the Buddha. And the first one takes place in southern Crete. I was in my 20s and I was hiking between these small fishing villages on the southern coast of Crete, backpacking by myself. And um, I don't read Greek, so the map was challenging for me, but it was a beautiful hike. And um, the way the map looked, it seemed quite straightforward to go through this string of villages, maybe even more than one a day. But somehow, maybe the second day in, the trail wasn't doing what I thought it would, would be doing. And, you know, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, but it's getting towards sunset. And I am nowhere near the village I thought I was going to be spending the night. There's, there were goats, there were butterflies, there were seabirds, there were no people. It was beautiful, quite isolated. And um, it starts, the darkness starts to gather, sunset's happening, and then twilight, and I crest this... Um, hill in the hiking path. And there, down, far in the distance, I see the, um, at this point, moonlight glimmering on buildings. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm young and fit. So I start running with my backpack to get there before it's completely dark on the trail. And, you know, running along, running along, and I get to the village right as it completely goes to darkness to discover that it is the ruins of an ancient fishing village. I mean, really old, centuries, centuries old. It's gorgeous, you know, but it's a ghost town. <laughs> like, there are ruins sort of like lit up scenically in the moonlight and, you know, the remnants of houses, the, maybe the remnants of an old church or town hall, you couldn't even tell. So... Um, my perception of this village changed like that, right? In my mind, it was full of people and maybe animals and perhaps a stray car. There weren't very many cars down there, if any. Restaurant, lodging, poof, gone. And I'm in this mysterious place. So thankfully, I had plenty of food um, with me enough for 20-something and... Um, grabbed some netting off the trees and made myself a bed and, and comfortably enough I spent the night there. But it was this moment of true shift. Like reality was just completely different than I thought it was. Glimmering in the distance through the filter of my wanting, my expectation, my need versus arriving and oh, that's how it is. 
Okay. We've all had this happen, right? Some version of this. So the Buddha talks about this kind of phenomena as being the illusions our mind weave, weaves through the perceptual process, sanya, and through sankharas, which are sort of, I think the translation I like the most right now is constructors of thinking, reactive constructors of thinking, which can turn into imagination, views, opinions, and even quite literally filter what we take in and shift our very seeing of it or hearing of it. All subjective experience depends on this kind of quality, these expectations that filter things, right? The Buddha talks about this in terms of a magician, that if you go to see a magician, and he's really good, he's doing his tricks, the illusion is very compelling. A rabbit out of the hat, or the person sawed in half who magically gets back up, or whatever it is. Yet, if we're able to step to the side, the side of the show, it's possible then to see how the tricks are done. Right? And then the illusion is pierced. It doesn't matter how compelling it is, we know better. And it's not as maybe as fun or exciting. There can be disillusionment about it when the tricks are seen through. But that, that is the power of mindfulness, is seeing through this magic making our minds do. The way we weave together subjective reality that might differ a little bit or a lot from what's actually there. So I say all of this to say, since our minds are constantly interpreting and constructing experience, humility and simplicity are very, very helpful dispositions to hold. Right? It's sometimes fairly easy to see when someone else is constructing something that isn't accurate. It's much harder for most of us, most of the time, to see through that weaving process ourselves, that weaving of the illusion. So another way to talk about this is that our subjective interpretations of experience define how we move through the world. They define our reality, what's available to us. And the Buddha talks about this a little bit more directly. The book I went to grab is the Dhammapada, which most of you are probably familiar with. This is Gil Fronstel's translation. The very first verse, very famous verse, many have heard before. It's called Dichotomies. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind. And suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Then, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows, like a never-departing shadow. So this touches into this attitude of mind, and how 
it underpins not just our personal experience of a moment, but the cascade of moments that happen after it, how people relate to us, the choices we make. All of that weaves together into this magic show or misperceived village <laughs> that we're walking through in our lives. <laughs> the importance or even the reality of a thing is usually registered based on its impact, not just on our pers- like our sensation level experience, but on our assumptions, presumptions, wants, wishes, hatreds, pettiness, aspirations in any moment. It's all filtered through that, right? And the subjectivity changes between people. So this whole phenomena, it's been around for decades now, of instant replay in the sports realm, how it it transformed the game, right? The audience, even the umpires, depending on where the umpires are standing on a playing field, can have very different perceptions of what happened in a play or a foul. Now the cameras, however, they also might have different perceptions, but if there's enough of them around, it triangulates to what exactly happened. Get the angle on the thing, the angle on the event. And mindfulness, as it develops towards wisdom and spaciousness, helps develop more of a consciousness of this, right? That we know we don't have all the angles on what's happening. Or at least that the one angle that presents itself not be so, or it might not be as completely so as I'm convinced it is, mindfulness creates that little gap, that little space. So humility and simplicity are very helpful dispositions. And I want to just offer, since English language often kind of flattens the meaning of the Pali terms that the Buddha used, I'm going to offer some of the Pali and the alternate translations for humility itself, or humbleness. So, sagaravata is one of the words, or sagarava, which means respect or respectful. You can just feel how that feels in your heart and body. Humility versus respect. There a difference in how it resonates. Another one is vinita, well-trained. Another synonym in the Buddha's language for humility. Humility is also correlated with service. Service to others, service to something larger. And that, Pali, is nipacharaka. So just these different resonances. And then finally, a humble mind, a humble heart. Nichamano. Humble mind, humble heart. Open mind, open heart. So this um, importance of 
You could call it a humble mind or heart or an open mind or heart. Part of what's truly humbling about this is that greed, hatred, and delusion and all of their relatives, all of their henchmen, are active constructors in the reactive thingification, reification of Sankara's mental activity. Gil Fronstel sometimes likes to say, perception is not innocent. Even the act of perception is informed by something else. Whether it's the want for a restaurant or a place to sleep, the want for a good time in a magic show, or the wanting to get away from something. And so these sankharas, then greed, hatred, and delusion that are built into their fuel, these reactive formations, reactivity, distort perception itself, view itself, fear distorts, right? The classic simile in the discourses of the rope being mistaken for a snake, the coiled rope in a dark room being mistaken for a snake. Another story from my own life, when I was quite young, maybe, I don't know, nine years old, something like that, ten, and my family, my sister and I and two parents, went hiking a section of the Appalachian Trail. And that summer, before our hike, I had gotten badly stung by a bee that got kind of stuck in my shoe. So I was quite shy and afraid of bees. And one night we, um, we camped out at this place and it was kind of sloping and it was one of those not ideal campground situations. So um, both tents were kind of placed against a fallen log to keep them from sliding down the hill. And in the morning, the Appalachians are quite moist, right? So there's it had been wet, kind of dewy overnight, and the sun is out, and it's like on the tent, and it's warming the tent, and I'm waking up, and I look up, and at first I thought it was dappled leaves, but it turned out it was all these little tiny bees crawling on the outside of the tent. And my sister and I were in the same tent, and we amped each other up, man. We were not okay with this. <laughs> It was not cool. So what happened was we ended up putting on every piece of clothing we had to protect ourselves from the bees. If you can picture this, you know, multi-day camping trip, like hat and like wrapping stuff around our, our faces. And we lit out of that tent and we ran like probably a quarter mile. Those bees didn't follow us. They were sunning themselves. I mean, perfectly lovely morning. They would have not done a thing if we'd, you know, calmly gotten out of the tent, but we didn't know that. And Dad got the tent put away. I think he maybe got stung once in shaking the tent out, but maybe not at all. So that fear distorted, like, these very peaceful, sunning creatures into something that, oh, it's going to attack me. Hatred and anger and rage distort too, right? The ancient teachings speak of hatred or hostility making people ugly in our minds and even distorting our own faces to be ugly in the moment. And then greed or lust, desire, distort in a different way. This illusion, this is going to make me happy. This square of chocolate, 
this new car, this new partner, whatever it is. And it might for a while. Usually we humans are pretty good at resetting ourselves back to something that approaches our normal not long after getting that, whatever that thing is. There have been studies done that um, the moment of peak happiness for someone when buying, let's say, a new item of clothing in a department store, is the moment of handing the credit card over. Isn't that wild? So, not for everyone, of course, but for a lot of people, that's the moment of joy is the acquisition. And then it fades. But most of us, of course, are biased towards noticing how good it might feel to get versus how not good it feels to want or towards potential threats or things that might be harmful. But these rose-colored glasses, even perceiving through a naive filter of optimism or distraction, can be problematic. I, I hike a lot, as you may have picked up on from these stories. And um, during COVID, I was hiking every single day. So I got to know the trails in the area quite well. And one day I was hiking along a trail and out of the sort of corner of my vision, because I had sort of was looking at the broad view, I could see on, on the um, path what looked like a route. But I knew the trail well enough to know that a route wasn't there. So my eyes flicked down and saw a rattlesnake sunning itself. And I saw it about six inches before my foot would have landed on it. So I just took a larger step forward. I will say perfectly calmly, actually, because I was meditating while walking. The snake did not move. It flicked its little tongue to smell me. And I kept walking. But wow, right? Like, it's easy sometimes to misperceive even something dangerous is benign, depending on the mindset. Anger, rage can be misperceived as joking by some people, depending on their conditioning of the person who's angry or depending on conditioning of the person seeing it. So all of these things, to me, add up to taking a beat, noticing, right? Oh, is this a little off? Am I perceiving this the way it is? People's experience, as I was mentioning with the sports cam analogy, can be quite different, even of exactly the same event, depending on the view or theory they've held the kind of input they receive, or the emotional tenor with which we walk into the situation. The gift for me with that rattlesnake is that I was perfectly calm, right? And observant enough. That said, the, the understanding of a situation, even like the winner of a race, depends literally sometimes on where you stand. There's that story of the elephants in the blind men and discourses. And this is a story, I believe it's in ancient Hinduism as well. Um, many of you have heard this, maybe all of you, but this king kind of sets these 
unsighted people up for his own sort of edutainment, if you will. So he has an elephant brought to a corral, an amphitheater type place, and then a number of blind people, unsighted people. And each of them are led by someone to a different part of the elephant and only allowed to feel that part. So one feels the trunk, one feels the tail, another feels its side, another one an ear or a foot. And then pulled away from the elephant as a group, they are asked, what is an elephant based on what you felt? And the stories are quite different, right? The one who felt the ear, oh, it's a winnowing basket, the tail, oh, it's like a rope. The one who felt the side, oh, it's like a storehouse or a wall. The foot is like a big post. And they were amped up under all this pressure in front of the king, so much that they practically became to blows arguing about this. That pressure doesn't tend to bring out the best in someone. And combined with not seeing the whole picture, or feeling into the whole picture in this case, through the tiny avenue we have to experience reality can change quite a bit. There are some elders in my life who were in law enforcement back when they had careers. And they would talk about this one anecdote one of them said about interviewing witnesses after a bank robbery. And this is like in the early 80s or late 70s. So there weren't all these video cams around, right? 17 witnesses would have 19 different stories. Right? It made it quite challenging to figure out what the heck happened. So as I'm saying, this feeling of life threat does not encourage accurate perceptions or feeling of any kind of pressure or threat. And it's especially true helpful to remember that often the threat is much subtler. It's to I, me, mine, my identification as a good person, as a rational person, as a this, as a that, whatever it is. So the Buddha, instead of um, having us get stuck in this sense of at times, maybe once or twice in your life, I know I have, needing to protect an identity or a point of view, invites an alternate lens. What decreases suffering in the moment? What aligns with an honest simplicity, a humility about what's happening now for me, acknowledging that it's different for others, perhaps? And this leads to the Four Noble Truths, too, right? This is suffering. This need to be right, or this grabbing on to a view. Sankapa is an ancient um, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, revered, and he said something like, I can't find this exact quote, but I'm going to paraphrase. I am on the side of those who do not argue with the reality because reality always wins. Reality always wins. So it's a different angle on opinions and views. 
And this kind of comes to the helpfulness of the simplicity piece. Talked a lot about the humility piece. It's um, it's so helpful grounding in the simplicity of awareness of what is and the subjectivity of what is through meditation, through mindfulness, through commitment to that. We, we're not quite so easily taken in or led around by our self-view, other views, concepts, mind states. It's a supportive shift towards this functional kind of way of seeing things. What aligns with the honest simplicity of what's happening here and now in this being? And it's much easier with this internal orientation to simplicity to avoid the second arrow of suffering, right? The first arrow was the actual suffering of an event. The second arrow was what we layer on, on top, or what we take in from what other people are layering on top. This simplicity leads to a much more restful, harmonious, internal ecology. Ajahn Chah, one of the great teachers of the Thai forest tradition, talks about this restful, harmonious, internal simplicity as being like a still forest pool. Resting in the moment and allowing our thoughts, opinions, emotions, sensations to move through, to come to us, to drink at the pool and then to leave again without needing to grab onto or shoo away. The pool, the mind, the awareness itself can stay much quieter. And then for a being like the Buddha, fully enlightened being, it's possible not to stand on any of these thoughts or concepts created by the mind not to stand on imagination. The Buddha is quoted as saying, whatever is seen, heard, or understood, the Tathagata, the thus gone one, has not taken a stand upon it. Many of you have heard Andrea quote this. But more simply, for practitioners, we can have these moments of freedom, moments of freedom, as the Buddha instructed at several times in the discourses, the most famous being the Bahia Sutta, of whatever is seen, only that what it, what is seen is only the seen, what is heard is only the heard, what is felt is only the felt, what is cognized, known, perceived is only what is cognized, known, perceived. When the mind is there, there is no you here or there or in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So thank you. Thank you for your kind attention. That's enough of my thoughts for today. And... um, I'm going to stop the recording and we can speak freely.